This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Joy, I'm so glad to meet you. I'm so glad to get to have this conversation with you. For anybody who doesn't know you, Joy, do you mind introducing yourself and why it is that you came on with me to talk about Loris today? Absolutely. So my name is Joy Clarkson, or Joy Marie, as I often go by in writing. And I just finished a PhD in theology, imagination, and the arts at the University of St. Andrews on the sparkling coast of Scotland. And I spend a lot of my time thinking about how art and literature can shape moral life. And I host a podcast and have for the last four years called Speaking with Joy. And I just wrote a book and I'm an editor at Plow Quarterly. And that's what I spend most of my time doing and drinking tea. And I love that you titled it Speaking with Joy, because of course I think of Surprised by Joy, which Lewis didn't even mean to have, you know, as a reference to Joy Davidman, but of course that always comes into people's minds. When you're named Joy, you have people your whole life making puns on your name. So I felt like it was kind of time. It was it was my it was my turn to <laughs> make a pun on my own name. You own the pun now. That's awesome. Exactly. Exactly. I don't think that most people would consider you a Russian specialist, right? I don't know that that's what you're known for. So why did you want to talk about Loris of all of the books that I'm talking about in the Scandal of Holiness? Well, so I'm definitely not a, a expert in Russian literature, but I do love Russian literature. I have, um, if I, I would, I would go in the back of my house. I have a huge, weird, like um, art deco portrait thing of the brothers Karamazov. So I, I do love Russian literature in general. Yeah. And um I think what I love about it particularly is it has this kind of cathartic quality to me where it's pretty much all about like death and sex. Mm -hmm. And, um, and those are, those are kind of, um, you know, the things that we are scared of talking about and scared of thinking about. And yet they're also kind of fundamental to all of human life. And so the reason I wanted to talk about Loris in particular is actually it's a weird combination of things. So in my work at Plow Quarterly, um, they obtained the translation rights for the next two books by, um, by his author. And so I had been one of their kind of like Hail Mary readers for the final manuscript of one of the recent ones. And I read it and I was like, what is this? Who is this author? He's so cool. Like I love, I, it, it was a totally different kind of book. It's not medieval, yeah. um, but I was really compelled by it. And then, um, I, I, I had just finished my PhD and I don't know if you've had this experience, but like I got to the end of it and I was like, I can read books that I want to read. And um, yeah. And someone had given me this book and then I did an interview on my podcast with Paul Kings North and he was like, you know, it's a great book, Loris. So I had had it just like waiting around for a long time. And then when you emailed me, I thought I'd already started it actually, because I'd started it right after I finished my PhD. And I thought, Great. This is this is my reason to get into it and to get to talk to somebody about Russian literature and why it's great. Yeah. So my my PhD was on Russian literature because it was on Dostoevsky. So when I finished my, oh. I went and read Middlemarch and Moby Dick. <laughs> oh yes. Oh yes. Oh, also very good ones. I actually haven't finished Moby Dick, but Middlemarch is a beloved one. 
Yeah. Well, those two for me, I mean, I just didn't do anything. Most people, when they hear that you have a PhD in literature and theology, they just immediately assume, oh, literature PhD, you must have read, you know, George Eliot and Herman Melville. Yeah. <clears throat> My background was all Flannery O'Connor, Evelyn Waugh, Dostoevsky. So I hadn't read kind of the main canon of literature. Mm. So I went back and was reading the classics for fun after I finished my doctorate. But this must have been an immense treat for you. What was your doctorate in? What did you finish your dissertation in? So I was actually thinking as I was reading this, man, I wish I'd known about this for my dissertation because I looked at um, how literature, visual art, and music can prepare us for death. So how spiritual practices use art and imagination to like prepare the affect of life to die, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh. This would have been a great book to be able to talk about. Yeah, yeah, it's really well. And my book, The Scandal of Holiness, the last section is on Ars Moriendis, and I don't really touch on what is a good death. But I found in the process of writing on all of these books that every single one of them touched on all of the virtues, and so it's impossible for saints who follow him to not really touch on all of that. I mean, it's like refracting light, Mm. the ways that these saints' lives end up delving into Mm. all areas. Yeah. I love that. And I'll just stick in a quick nerdy thing. Um, In part of my PhD, I talked about morality plays and um, which this kind of seems to reference a bit. And that's what, you know, it's where death as an embodied figure comes to visit the everyman and say, you're going to die. So get ready. And then he leaves and he's like, I'm going to come back another time. And the everyman's like, oh my gosh, I have to get ready to die. And the way that, that that is depicted is by the virtues also embodied coming alongside the saint and saying, okay, but you need hope to be able to face death well, and you need humility and you need, and I just love that as kind of this picture of that, you know, if you are, like you said, if you're imitating Christ in death, then you actually have to have all of these virtues fighting for you at your side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I see that a lot with, uh, you know, depending on which, which uh, name you want to pick for the protagonist in Loris. Mm-hmm. Um, that he has that sense of, uh, he needs, he actually needs hope. He needs not to despair. He needs, you know, he kind of has these evolutions of facing death and dealing with that. Yeah. So if you had to turn Loris into a morality play, when, when does death first approach the character and what are some of the first virtues he starts Mm. or that come to him? Quite literally in this death is an embodied figure, right? Especially towards the beginning. Um, and as Jessica knows, I haven't actually finished the very last page, so I, so we're, we'll we'll keep quiet. But um, so I think death visits when he first sees death. I think it's um, I think it's for his grandfather, mm-hmm. isn't it? And it's interesting because that's actually a theme um, in the other book that I read by Wodolskin as well. Yeah, um, is is the sense of being connected to a grandparent and how a lot of times uh, a grandparent's death is the first kind of encounter of death that someone has. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in that moment, he not sure what virtue, I think the virtue he really struggles with after kind of his spouse, his, his love's death mm-hmm. is he really struggles with despair. That's kind of the vice that he, he is wrestling with. He has a sense that her soul is damned and his soul is damned and he doesn't know what to do about it. And so a lot of that is, and he feels he's even kind of lost his own life and he's wrestling truly with atonement, you know, can someone else's life buy back? Um, so that's, the, that's the most clear one to me, but I'm not sure what, what the virtue is operating with the grandfather, but that one, that to me is the most clear in the first kind of half of the book is 
his wrestle between the vice of despair and the virtue of hope and, and, and trusting in the mercy of God. Yeah, I was recently speaking at the school and the, the head of school there, I think has a PhD in theology or is ordained mm -hmm. or um, <clears throat> has a background in Greek languages. And he was telling me that the word for mercy, I don't know Greek, mm -hmm. the word for mercy is um, aeolon, like oil. Mm -hmm. The mercy mm -hmm. oil are really connected. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because oil, of course, had a healing property. Mm -hmm. So the idea of mercy is more, we should connote healing with it mm. rather than, um, especially in a lot of Protestant circles that I've been in, we consider mercy this transactional and mm. you know, mercy pays off the debt that you accrue. Mm. And instead mercy heals the sickness of the sinner. Mm. And that's very orthodox too. <laughs> yeah. And then if you think about it in terms of this novel in particular, he doesn't have the virtue of mercy, but he mm. practices it. Like he starts practicing mm. healing and participating in mercy in the hopes of receiving it, which is is not something we normally think of, right? You need you need repentance, and you need to be the source of mm. of hope and mercy, and therefore you can pour out. And instead, he goes almost the opposite direction. It's a little like an imitation of Christ in the sense of, you know, Christ becomes sin so that we might be holy. And he has this sense of like, I am bearing sin. You know, he doesn't feel like he is receiving mercy, but that that's actually like a part of his spiritual journey is to be willing to be despised or hated or for the sake of someone he loves. Yeah. And that can seem really, I was actually thinking about this, that can seem really foreign to our kind of transactional way of thinking about things, but it's actually pretty fundamental to a Christian idea of salvation, right? And so we have to believe that Christ's life can do something for our lives. Mm -hmm. And and so in a similar way, when you see arsony wanting to atone, wanting to give grace, wanting to show mercy, you have to believe that that actually, and even like his desire to pass, like when he, with the plague victims, he wants to pass the warmth of his own heart to other people. But I've had a lot of people push back on that because they think it's pathological. Uh, I've had friends read this book who do not like it because they think it's not Christian, right? Because I, yeah, you're frowning, but this is, I'm <laughs> one, he's not praying to God. He prays to the saints and therefore he's not Christian Two, He thinks he can atone for her. So he's playing God in the novel. And then three, it's pathological. The way that he takes on suffering and seeks suffering. This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth by Beth Allison Barr. In the book, Barr shows that biblical womanhood isn't biblical, but was born in a clearly definable historical moment, and she presents a better way forward for the contemporary church. Get 40% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com with code READING. What would you say? Well, and I, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of a question for all of medieval Europe, right? Like everybody was going around trying to take on suffering, try to get a stigmata. And sometimes it was holy and sometimes it did seem a little pathological, yeah. but I think that's something that's interesting about the book too, is that a, a big part of this is he has experienced this huge trauma. And I think that birth scene is like, I feel like I have also experienced a huge trauma after reading the birth scene. Um, and so a part of this is thinking about 
trauma is something that we can't integrate into our lives. It remains present with us because it can't be integrated into the past. Mm -hmm. And so part of this is him trying to figure out how to integrate this huge, terrible thing that's happened. And that also in some way he caused to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think we're really quick to just call things crazy or pathological. Do you know what I mean? And, and sometimes I just don't think it's as clear as that. Perhaps sometimes there is part of it that's pathological and yet there's also grace and mercy flowing through it because that's just kind of human existence is all of us being pathological and a little bit twisted and not quite straight and God having grace and mercy through it. But also Christian means little Christ one. So he is imitating Christ, even if he's doing it sometimes in an uneven way. I, I don't, I don't, I think we've gotten to a really weird place if we're like, someone trying to take on the suffering of others, that's not very Christian. (laughs) That just seems absurd to me. But even the way he does it is so extreme. I mean, you were talking about the birth scene. I tried to read that out loud to my husband, which the second time I read this book, I was, I was actually pregnant. I was eight months pregnant and I had lost lost two babies before. Oh my gosh. So I'd, I'd had two babies, lost two babies, was pregnant with this one. And I was reading this for the second time and it was like, whoa, uh, it was, it was very, like you said, you can vicariously experience the suffering with Sunny during this time. Are we supposed to experience it in such a way that it causes imitation? It is something we're supposed to model. I mean, if you're imitating Christ, I mean, Christ dies on the cross. <laughs> do we imitate the way that Arsene does? Do we lay down in cemeteries and allow people to throw stones at us and call out demons and I feel like part of what this book is showing, though, is that like life is kind of inexplicable. Even if you have great faith, life is a bit confusing and strange. So I don't think we're meant to be like, everyone should do exactly what Arsene did. He's clearly very reasonable. <laughs> um, but I think that a part of it is that you, you'll see him do these unreasonable things. But then like the scene where he throws all the loaves on the ground and then the guy beats him up and you're like, wow, this is really insane. Like this is what's happening. But then in the end, the guy comes to him and experiences great mercy. So I think, I don't think we're meant to just be like, yes, Arsene is clearly doing everything reasonably and correctly. But I think the fact that we have this sense that we can know exactly what was, what would be the reasonable response. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we can know the circumstances under which grace might operate mm-hmm. is um, maybe a bit of our own foolishness. Yeah. But what do you think? So I lean more towards the necessity of being more foolish than we are. And I don't know exactly what that means because just like everybody else, I have this sense, you know, I want to belong. I, you know, mm-hmm. I want to be outcast and, you know, I, I'm not going to be the person that shows up at the next keynote event and I'm going to be barefoot and I'm going to be wearing you know, mm-hmm. my, my thorns around my waist or whatever. But, but at the same time, Christ called us to be foolish and Paul got thrown out of towns. And I, I just worry sometimes that I'm, I'm too eager to fit in, even if it's a community and these kind of narratives at least make me wrestle with that. They make me question, okay, what am I doing to fit in? And should I be doing that? Or should I be standing out more? Should I risk being thrown out more than I do? You know, you know, Something that when you were saying that, that reminded me kind of came up for me was um, I remember one of my friends who was experiencing a bit of a, had had in the past experienced some kind of tumultuous mental health issues. 
um, was talking about how um, how frustrating it was for her to be like, oh, well, that's just mental illness and you need to like cure it, whether that was through medication or whatever. And she was like, I know that I wasn't healthy and I needed to be cured, but it also felt like that was a way just to be like, to sweep the legitimate pain under the rug. And I feel like that's the case with arsony, which is like, we might say, well, this is just a pathological response to whatever. But in a way, arsony is more in touch with the kind of profound he's more open to the world, I think, and to God in some ways than we are. And so I think maybe it's, yeah, it does make us kind of question our own ways of telling stories. You notice how his first response, so when Ustina dies, his first response is to start healing and to go atone in good deeds, right? He's going to go do these yeah. things that hopefully mm-hmm. will help him and her receive mercy. And then he receives acclaim by doing good works. So like if we draw mm-hmm. parallels, you can imagine someone who, as a Christian, is responding in good works and good deeds, becomes mm-hmm. famous and has the life of luxury. And what he mm-hmm. does is what we don't normally see in Christian celebrity, that when you attain mm-hmm. that and he's up in the prince's castle and he is full of all of these great things in life, he forgoes them. I mean, when he becomes a holy fool, he does so in response to the fact that he feels less close to Christ and he can't feel or sense Ustina mm-hmm. like the saints. He can't feel them as much when he's in the life of luxury. So he doesn't he doesn't go and suffer um, you know, in the town as a holy fool as his first response. He mm-hmm. goes there in a sense like to overcome how much luxury and indulgence attracted him, like how much he felt more safe. He felt safe and secure in a worldly sense in that life. Even, you know, he had almost an adopted son and an adopted wife, and he could have lived this life of happily ever after. And that felt wrong to him. Mm. And so he, you know, he goes into this, this other life where he is more ascetic. And I think we're really uncomfortable with that idea that you would, that you would forego the middle-class American dream for getting closer to God. Or... It reminds me a little bit of Rich Mullins who like uh, kind of had a, you know, had that really like passionate heart, got really famous in CCM and then um, felt really uncomfortable with it. And so he basically sold all his possessions and went and lived on a reservation. Um, and people were like, why are you doing that? You know, um, how does it feel to live with the pagans was they would ask him. And he was like, well, I mean, I feel like suburban life might be just as pagan as, uh, yeah. as anything else. Right. And I don't know that we're ever clearly told that like RC did the right things. Do you know what I mean? I, and I, and I don't know if that's the point. I think the point is to kind of live inside this story and say, how do we become what we become and how are we faithful to the loves and the losses and the deaths that we do experience and that in its kind of transgressive from our very modern point of view, um, it helps us challenge maybe how we might usually think about that. Also, for people for whom this is uncomfortable, just reading a lot of like the early monastic stuff will make you incredibly uncomfortable because this is just uh, mild compared to some of the crazy things that, you know, the Desert Fathers did. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, why do you think that he does? I mean, in a sense, Vodolashkin writes a medieval story, but almost with a postmodern structure. From Vodolashkin's point of view, he has said elsewhere, like in First Things and so forth, 
that the postmodern structure is actually a medieval structure. That this idea of right th this collection of the fragments mm -hmm. narrative is actually a medieval way of doing things. Why? I mean, why do you think he's returning us to that rather than just write a modern novel? Well, I think it's interesting because I think there is a lot of connection between, which I'm sure you would <clears throat> have more to say about, but between postmodern and medieval because, um, you know, we say postmodern and what is pre-postmodern is modern and what is pre-modern is, is this pretty much, you know, medieval is kind of the era that comes before. And so it's kind of a, an interesting, there's an obvious connection. I think the reason he writes a medieval novel rather than a uh, modern novel, or even just a straight up postmodern novel, is that uh, there's this, I think, desire to, to enter into fragmentation, like to, to the fragmentation of our life, but know that there's something sturdy underneath it, right? And, um, and I think, you know, people complain a lot about disenchantment, Lately. And the thing that's always ironic about that is there is that there's this kind of thought that we can like re-enchant the world, right? That we could, if we could just do something right, we could all look at the world and be full of meaning. Uh, I think that he did the medieval style kind of as a way to, to actually inhabit a more enchanted view of the world. Um, and a big part of that enchanted view of the world is that you are, you know, you think about Charles Taylor, he talks about kind of porousness and the sense of, um, of, you know, being one with the world, those aren't things that you can do in a modern mindset where you can control things. You're an autonomous human being. Uh, truth is something that you have control over, can analytically grasp. That's all a very modern mindset. Postmodernism would be like, no, you can't analytically grab it. It's always from your own perspective. You know, we're all porous. We're all influencing each other. And I think medieval literature would kind of say the same thing. And so I think doing a postmodern novel, but in medieval in, a, in medieval time is kind of a way of trying to explore, okay, well, if we really dive into this kind of fractured, my perspective, human experience, is there a possibility of discovering something sturdy underneath it? And that seems like a really clever way, I think, of him doing that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I love it. I mean, I've compared it to a hagiographic icon. Mm. You know those where they're just like, you know, there's the life of the saint that kind of goes mm. around it. But what you're doing is you're always trying to see in the life of the saint how it reflects the life of Jesus. So it looks fragmented. Mm. And a lot of times it doesn't go in any chronological order because it's going, mm -hmm. um, it's ruled by an order of providence. It's not ruled by mm. the our current way of thinking about time. And mm. I think that's what he's doing in this novel is he's trying to give us a providential sense of time in which uh, the unseen life of Arsene is even more important than the seen life. Of course, it takes place connected. Um, but at the same time, there's something overruling his his story. And it's it's being yeah. altered outside of Arsene's will. Yeah. Not, maybe, yeah. What, what has C.S. Lewis said? Um, from a certain perspective, predestination and uh, free will are the same. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I... Yeah, go ahead. And there's a section where his, where I think it's when he's traveling to a Jerusalem with the, with the prophet that basically says that the kind of sense of, well, of course we have free will. And of course there's destiny. Um, and if you could only see it from, and, and that chapter is funny because it's going in between modern times and past times, which is that kind of sense of, yeah, it's the experience of time as providential, but also not linear, which is also a, a very kind of pre-modern 
way of thinking about the world. It is. Well, and Vodolozhkin is definitely trying to get us back to it. This understanding of time. He does it. Did you ever read The Aviator? You read his other one, Brisbane, which I haven't read, but have you read The Aviator? I haven't read The Aviator. No. Yeah. This is, I mean, the story opens, I'm not going to ruin anything. The story opens with a character who's trying to figure out who he is. And it comes to find out like he got frozen during the Soviet time mm -hmm. period. Now he's awakened in our time period. So it's like Captain America, but yeah. Soviet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot more reflective on what that would do to a person, right? And uh -huh. through his diaries. And so you have you have the same kind of questioning about time. How much does the medieval world still have to say to who we are? How much should we consider ourselves part of their story and continuing their story? Mm -hmm. How much should we think about the stories that come after us? in ways that we don't. We often, when um, especially just, I think, postmodern people, we think of our stories autonomously. I'm just, I'm just telling my story. And it has to do with like when I was born and when I die. Mm -hmm. Instead of imagining my story fits in a huge narrative that mm -hmm. creation and is going to end at, you know, ultimately apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. But that but there that there's a way to kind of liken that icon to see these individual stories woven in to a, a greater whole rather than something we could necessarily control or even understand in this present time. Yeah. Well, I um, I'm not going to take too much more of your time. Would you be willing to read maybe your favorite passage from the book? Oh, dear. Um, I'm trying to hold on. Let me think. Well, okay. Can I read a silly one that I dog-eared because I it's, it's not my favorite passage in the book, but um, I was, I'll, and then I'll find my favorite passage, but I was uh, laughing when I was reading about Stroev, I think is his name. And it says um, um, that he, he, he completed his thesis. He defended his thesis at the very end of the year, strove in a January of the new year by tossing off the burden that had been weighing on him for so long. And let's be honest, making his life thoroughly miserable. His soul <laughs> felt lighter. <laughs> So I enjoyed that as someone who's just also defended my thesis. I was like, and let's be honest. Um, and as someone who also is entering January uh, with a, a lighter soul due to a PhD being done. So I'm sure there are many other much more beautiful sections that I might have had to think about that beforehand. I love some of the opening bits with a grandfather just because it was so, um, I wish we had a whole book about the grandfather. He seems so gentle and loving and and does kind of set the stage for the whole rest of the book, I think, in some ways. Yeah, just the fact that, you know, it begins in the cemetery because the grandfather knows he's going to die soon and is not afraid mm. of that. And it's just very practical. Like, I'm going to live next to the cemetery so it's easy to carry me over, right? And then yeah. the, whole, the whole narrative is always wrapped around of this idea of preparing for death, that every life mm -hmm. is preparing for death, which is just... And I love, and also the grandfather's one who kind of has that sense of time at the very beginning of what will happen. He kind of sees in this moment, everything that will happen in this little cemetery. Yeah. And his response to that is just be like, okay, I'll live here because it'll be good for the next few years, you know, before I die. Yeah. It's, and, and that's lovely. I think we're just too afraid. And this book hopefully gets us to overcome some of those fears that shouldn't belong to the Christian because Christ has overcome death and Christ has overcome so many things. So yeah, it's true. Well, I'm glad that you got a chance to read it. I'm glad you got a chance to talk about it with me. I hope that many more people are going to pick this up. It's one of those books that um, when I told people I was writing The Scandal of Holiness and they asked like, what mm. 
working with. And I, I mentioned this one and a friend was like, are you just trying to pick the most obscure novels that nobody has ever <laughs> read? <laughs> like a cult favorite right now. Like this is a, yeah. And I think it's going to be one of those books that outlasts everybody and will still be taught in a hundred years. So I, I think you are right. I think it is quite a remarkable book. And, uh, and now that our interview is almost done, I might go finish the last few pages. <laughs> so no spoilers, but you will love them. So, oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Jessica. It's been really fun.